from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus hey this is christina quinn I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, I'm introducing a new series of podcasts called Spies Like Us, about the men and women who serve our nation in the intelligence service. Each episode will feature the true story of a career intelligence officer and all the ups, downs, and shocking moments they endured along the way. The intelligence community plays a vital role in our national security. In the years following World War II, the Central Intelligence Agency was created under the National Security Act of 1947. The CIA officially came into existence on September 18, 1947. The CIA has continued to adjust to ever-changing global landscapes. Their mission is to collect, 
analyze, evaluate, and disseminate foreign intelligence to assist the president and senior U.S. government policymakers in making decisions relating to national security every day. The work of the men and women of the CIA is remarkable. On this episode, I'll introduce you to Charlie Allen. Charlie Allen was appointed Assistant Director of Central Intelligence for Collection by the Director of Central Intelligence, George Tenet. Charlie Allen is one of the great legends of American intelligence. He's been actively involved since 1958. He has been in a series of key roles. When the Reagan administration decided we had to rebuild our capacity to withstand nuclear war to convince the Soviets that we would never be able to be knocked out by a first strike, Charlie Allen led that very expensive, very complicated project. He was then tasked with setting up the initial intelligence center looking at terrorism and was very actively engaged in the 90s long before 9-11 in trying to think through and help attract down bin Laden and others. Charlie has played a role that I think most people in intelligence will tell you makes him a mentor, a professional, somebody they look up to, and somebody whose depth of knowledge is literally unparalleled. I was first introduced to Charlie Allen when George Tennant, then the director of Central Intelligence, offered me the opportunity to come over and review first the war on terrorism and then the Iraq situation. And ultimately, I got involved across the entire agency. This was about 2002, 2003. And Charlie and I would spend Saturdays together, and he would guide me around the building, introduce me to people, set up the right kind of learning. So for a number of years, Charlie and I spent time trying to think through what are the things that threaten America, and what do we need to do to improve our ability to survive? And I think you're going to find this interview with Charlie Allen a fascinating exposure to how the intelligence community works and what America does to try to protect itself in a dangerous world. As I remember, you grew up in North Carolina and you joined the agency in 58. What led you to do that? I was interested in government and politics, but I was also interested in English literature, and UNC had a great English department. I minored in English, but majored in government. Instead of reading poetry under the trees at Chapel Hill, I suddenly realized I was going to graduate. I was going to get married. I said, you have to get a job. So I went over to the place where recruiters arrived, and that day they had had a CIA recruiter left behind some materials. I filled out the materials. I had an interest uh, because I had been a summer employee for five summers when I was one year in high school and four years in college with the FBI, where I did clerical work for the FBI as a summer employee. So I had a sense that, you know, with the Cold War and the dangers of that, it would be a good thing. And I got a response asking me to come to Washington for an interview. So I came to Washington, had the interview. It went well. It was dealing with leadership profiles globally. The work would be on Central Europe, primarily Germany. And I was quite excited, but I had to wait almost a year to get through a hiring freeze and then and get the security clearances. And I I told my newly married bride, I said, I'm not sure I'll get through 
all the clearances. The polygraph was really rough. I, they asked questions I didn't think that uh, they should ask. But those days they had no guidance, and the rules were the rules of the essentially the Office of Strategic Services. But I came in in September 1958. I swore to uphold the Constitution, took that oath of office. Then we lived in Northern Virginia early in the Cold War to get a footing into this effort to begin to look at what's ahead. The risks were very great. We had Khrushchev making great claims about his ICBM capabilities. Of course, I knew nothing at that stage, but I was certainly willing to learn. What was your parents' reaction to that kind of career choice? Well, they were very supportive. My mother was very, very supportive. She was Scotch-Irish. She had always pushed me to excel. My father did, too. He was a farmer, and we had lived in austere conditions as a young person, and I had been taught that one has to work, and this is the way the world is, and they called me Charles, not Charlie, but you have to work, and you have to excel in school. I had good parents who gave me strong values and a strong willingness to work hard and to try to excel and achieve, so it was a classical Southern family, I'll say that. So you actually started out focused on Germany and Central Europe. Yes, I worked on Central Europe. We worked particularly on the, trying to keep track of science and technology. And we also had good intelligence at that time because we had Berlin Tunnel information, not only on Russians and the group of Soviet forces, Germany, but also we had good information on Walter Ulbricht's government through the Berlin Tunnel. Now, that ran out because there was a traitor in the British government who betrayed the tunnel, George Blake. But the information was good. It was voluminous and kept us going for my first two or three years. My first boss was a woman. It was not a man. It was a woman. I, I thank God for that. She was brilliant. She had a Ph.D. out of Oberlin College. She spoke German at a level that was considered fluent. And she spent a lot of time teaching me how to write, critical thinking. Coming out of North Carolina, I thought I knew how to write. But this woman, Lucy Pedersen, was a whole different order. And she had run the Berlin Document Center after the war and then had joined, the, she was an officer of strategic services and then joined the Central Intelligence Agency. And I always look back on those years with great fondness, working for this very brilliant scholar, a very gentle woman, but decisive when she had to be, and knowledgeable that was just amazing. So I felt very blessed by having a woman as my first supervisor at the Central Intelligence Agency. Which was a little unusual at the time, wasn't it? That's pretty early for women to have risen to that level. Very unusual, and she had excelled because of her knowledge of German, the culture and the language. And, of course, she had worked in support of people operating out of London. Her knowledge of Germany, having studied in Germany and worked in Germany, her fluency in German was remarkable. So I had great guidance. It was unusual. In fact, as I think back about it, having a woman supervisor in the agency was, was rather rare. Your career continued to grow. I mean, one of the things that's impressive about you is you play a major role early in the Reagan administration in really reassessing our capacity to survive a nuclear strike. I really did. I was called in by Carlucci, who was deputy director of Central Intelligence 
before he became Secretary of Defense, called me in and said, Colonel William Odom, who is military aide to Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor, wants to see you because there's a new program being developed under President Reagan. I didn't know what it was about. So off I go to the NSC, and we sit in the sit room with a number of people. It's a big new chair of the meeting. And they turned to me and said, I want to see how the intelligence community is prepared for continuity of operations. And I said, well, I don't know. I have not been briefed into any of its activities, but I will prepare you a major paper on it, and I'll meet your deadline. And they gave me uh, 30 days, and I made the visits back to senior people at the agency, went to talk to the rest of the community. I went back with a report, which Odom read, which said, well, I see we have a lot of work to do. And I said, absolutely. And I said, I've just been given the responsibility by Carlucci to do this. And I said, I'll have to find uh, a lot of positions and I'll have to find money. And he said, well, lots of luck on that. So I went back and talked to senior people here, including the director of the intelligence community staff, who told me you will not get any money and you won't get any billets. Rest assured, you can try. But then Bobby Ray Inman came down to be deputy director, replacing Carlucci, went on to be secretary of defense, went in to see Admiral Inman, and he said, interestingly, he said, I think I can find some money, and I think I can find some billets. So in a matter of a very short time, I had $40 million and 89 billets, and then I started building a concept of operations, a budget profile, operational uh, look at what would be needed for communications and for relocating senior officials as required in the intelligence community. I had an office here in Langley, but then they said, you need to go to another place undercover. So I went out and it was a undercover and it was under a shopping mall in Northern Virginia, believe it or not. it was. A, and there I had military officers and assigned to me and CIA officers, and we built the program. In 1982, I ended up working until 1985 as deputy director of the overall program. It was an acquisition program. I did not know how to do acquisition, but I had a three-star general who did. He said, you'll learn. Go out to TRW and renegotiate a contract. They're trying to charge us too much money. They're trying to give us a Cadillac, and we need a Ford. So I went out, and in a week's time, I talked to a guy named John Stinbit well-known Department of Defense officials, uh, still very much around. And at the end of a week, TRW conceded. We had what we wanted, and it was in a pace to keep cost under great constraints and keep schedule and performance, to have actual real capabilities that could work in the most dire circumstances. And we ran two national-level exercises where I was the exercise controller, and by golly, you know, we developed some sustaining capability. And we also started building a deception program in to tell the Russians, if they were listening through a variety of ways, that, look, we've got continuing national command authority. It was a pretty heady experience for a pretty young guy. I was in my 30s, I guess, at the time. I had served overseas for three years, which was a great experience. And then I was called back by Casey. Uh, I arrived back to report to him on 1 January 1985 to become his national intelligence officer for counterterrorism because he was quite exercised over the Palestinian terrorism, which was state-sponsored. Some of the money and funding f flowed in through Soviet means, 
but a lot if it involved Hezbollah, all flew in from Iran. It was a great assignment. Uh, it was the NIO for counterterrorism from uh, 1 January 1985 to March 1988. Let me just say for the uninitiated, NIO is National Intelligence Officer, is that correct? That is correct. And this was before we had a counterterrorism center. I was the centerpiece for counterterrorism. At that stage, we were working on a concept under Casey, under Dewey Claridge, to build the counterterrorism center at CIA, which would be interagency and would try to fuse intelligence among all of the agencies. But it was going to be also very operationally oriented so that we could actually conduct with support operations overseas. Uh, we had more than 10 Americans being held by Hezbollah, including Bill Buckley, who died in 1984 as a result of Hezbollah torture. And I ran that hostage location task force for those held in Lebanon for 14 months while I was the NIO for counterterrorism. We did some things that were good, getting the Achille Lauro, at least getting the killers. We didn't get Abu Abbas, but we came close. Bill Abbas ran the Palestine Liberation Front. As you recall, the Achille Lauro was a large cruise ship, which did a lot of cruises in the Mediterranean. This was in October 1985. We had already had the TWA hijacking in June of 85, where his bala killed Steedham, the Navy diver. And here we had, in October 85, we had the killing of Leon Klinghoffer, gentleman who was shot by the hijackers, body thrown overboard in order to intimidate the crew and the other passengers. That was quite a dramatic time. We didn't sleep for a week, but it was well worth it. We had meetings at the White House, which President Reagan personally attended, and I attended in the Situation Room behind Bill Casey, and we made plans to send SEAL Team 6 in to take down the cruise ship. Next, Charlie describes a dramatic moment with President Ronald Reagan. I'd like to welcome a new sponsor to Newt's World, BetterHelp.com. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient. Get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and Newt's World listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code NEWT. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com newt. Simply fill out the questionnaire to help assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. BetterHelp.com slash Newt. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Newt, N-E-W-T. BetterHelp, because you deserve to be happy.
I think the most dramatic moment I recall was Ronald Reagan, a tall man standing at the end. We all stood at the end when the decision had been made to send the SEALs after the ship. He stood and the president pointed with his finger and said, Admiral Crow, take no prisoners. He turned and walked out of the situation. It was a dramatic moment. The president made very quick and strong decisions, President Reagan did, that were powerful and impressive. And Casey and I talked about it in his car on the way back to Langley. It was a good moment that we were striking back. We brought in SEAL Team 6. Unfortunately, the Italians objected. They brought in their security forces. And we almost had a standoff on the tarmac between the U.S. and the Italian force at Carbonari. We did get four of the hijackers. The Italians cooperated. These were dramatic times. I was briefing the Congress. It made headlines, lead stories in Newsweek and Time. And the Israelis asked for me to come out and brief the Israelis, all the services there. So I spent the next few days, I went to the British and talked to them first, and then went on to Tel Aviv and talked to them. And then I did a series of briefings when I came back through Europe. Those were good moments uh, because President Reagan had said, you can run, but you can't hide. And this demonstrated to it. These were finally good and solid days with good leadership from the White House. The terrorism threat that you focused on in the 80s really is dramatically different than the Islamist focus of the current threat and the way it's evolved. How do you see that whole evolution? That is deeply different. What we faced in the 1980s and early 90s, by the early 90s, a lot of that had dissipated. Abu Nidal had been destroyed. It uh, had a lot of front companies, like you say, in Europe, which uh, helped fund a lot of the activities that were funneled in from the KGB and through other services. The demise of his organization was a great step forward, but they were not focused at that stage. It was a very different focus. Violent ideological Islamic extremism was not one of them. But by the late 1980s, we began to understand that there was a movement, particularly in Sudan and other areas, and that there was a bin Laden. Next, we'll discuss the rise of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. We had a charismatic figure with Osama bin Laden and others of his ilk. There's others, not just Zawahiri, but others like Abu Hafs al-Masri and others, who was a number two at the time. It wasn't Zawahiri. We had a growing problem set. The Taliban, which came out of the Inner Services Directorate of Pakistan, there was something called Directorate S, which supported this extremist view. ISI helped found and fund and position the Taliban to sweep into Kabul to keep the Tajiks out. The guidance from the Department of State was to try to talk to the Taliban, which was pretty hard. In those days, we didn't understand what was really happening, that the ground had moved under our feet, but we didn't realize just how dramatically things had changed. We did not form a group to look at bin Laden until 
1995. We were facing a different enemy. We did not really quite get that. We had our embassies attacked on 7 August 1998, which killed in Nairobi two CIA officers and a number of other Americans. They killed hundreds of Africans, the attacks in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam against the American embassies. We knew it was bin Laden from the start. We did not move as rapid as I would have wanted to go after what was occurring. It took a while, but we knew that another attack was coming in 2000. That was when I started pushing from my vantage point because I had become assistant director for collection on the 2nd of June, 1998. I already chaired the National Intelligence Collection Board, which I had turned into an operational activity. So I was ready to really start moving issues. The one thing that became clear to me, we had a static situation regarding trying to deal with the bin Laden problem. We had a lot of tribal recruits, but they were on the periphery, not part of the inner circle of bin Laden. I wanted to change that dynamic. I was meeting regularly with Dick Clark. He was the NSC advisor, special assistant president for counterterrorism. That was President Clinton. He sent me a memo saying, you must find a way to change the collection dynamic using any ideas you can garner from the Pentagon or from the rest of the intelligence community or think tanks anywhere. So I put together a report in April 2000, which talked about things that we needed to do with great urgency. I had had such a tremendous reception in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Scott Fry, who retired as a four-star admiral, said, we need to do this. I keep submarines off Pakistan in case we have to try to attack al-Qaeda. And he said, it's such a waste of effort, and it's not very good intelligence. He was absolutely right. Uh, so I guess my number one recommendation was I knew that the TLAMs were good. We had used TLAMs on the 21st of August, 1998. President Clinton had ordered the attack on what he thought were potentially al-Qaeda bases in Coast Province of eastern Afghanistan. I was very dubious of that. I went up and talked to the Deputy Director General Gordon, John Gordon Forster, and we hit the Shifa plant, the pharmaceutical plant in Sudan, which I said I don't, wouldn't hit that. It produces pharmaceuticals for most of sub-Sahara Africa. And, of course, we did strike that. We struck uh, some rocks and and we killed some Houthis, a militant group, but bin Laden and al-Qaeda was nowhere near where we, where intelligence allegedly said they might be. Very poor effort. It was extremely poor. I recall President Clinton flew back from his vacation, I guess, at Cape Cod to announce that we had attacked back, but the results were paltry, poor, literally very little. I posited that we should get some predators. We should put them under CIA control. The Air Force would second officers operating under CIA authorities could fly and change the collection dynamic. This was poorly received by people here in Langley, by my seniors. They saw no need for it and strongly opposed. I won't go into all the details because but we had a, no Memorial Day 2000. It was a knockdown drag out fight between me and General Gordon called the meeting, and we ended up by the fact that I didn't give an inch to any of the seniors here in Langley. We fought hard, and then I continued to pursue it. 
to find funding for it. I went to the Department of Defense to Art Money, who was Assistant Secretary for Command and Control and Communications and Computers. He said, I can find money. We wanted to be able to carry the signal all the way from the aircraft, the Predator A, all the way back to Langley, and then be able to determine how best to deal with any threat that we saw. I was able to prevail, and we started flying in September 2000. We flew until mid-September. We saw bin Laden and his team three times during that period, and one time including bin Laden and all his shura and all of his guards. We had to stop flying in mid-September. This was a real struggle. We also then, General Jumper, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, I wanted to arm it, and I thought that was a great idea. So we armed it and tested it. See, I ran tests with the Air Force, and it was very successful. I was pretty impressed that we could not just change the collection dynamic. I knew we had changed it when we started flying in early September 2000. Without any capability of arming, we would call in the TLAMs, would be the idea, call in submarines to fire TLAMs if we could locate Bin Laden. Would you explain what a TLAM is? It's a uh, Tomahawk land attack cruise missile. It flies about 500 miles an hour, hugs the terrain very closely, moves very rapidly, and can hit with an accuracy of about 10 feet, something like that. If it's programmed right, it'll hit directly on the target. One of the things I think is fascinating is you talked about the idea that you had to have a finding. This is all lawyer-driven, right? I had a major meeting of all concern at CIA, the intelligence community, because we had the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency heavily involved, defense involved, all the people involved. I said, we need to start using it against the leadership. And then I got a chorus of no's. We need to attack and only when we see bin Laden, because that will alert him that we have a war- armed capability. I said... We need to take down any leaders of the inner circle of the Shura anytime we can, because we do not have the human source penetrations that are required to attack al-Qaeda central in the way that we need to have. This is a way to get at it. This is the right thing. And I warned them. My principal deputy at the time was with me, a retired Navy captain. And he also remembers vividly my warning them. I said, we will be sorry for not deciding to act. And, of course, the clandestine service opposed any action except for going against Osama bin Laden, which got into a sort of farcical because once we got a lethal finding against Osama bin Laden, we needed to get lethal findings for his guards. Then we had to get lethal findings because he flew occasionally MI-17 helicopter. We had to get a lethal finding that would include bin Laden and his pilots, which seemed to me sort of nonsensical. But we did it, although we did it at glacial speed in getting these lethal findings. So we didn't fire a missile until 7 October 2001 after 9-11 and after Mullah Omar had escaped. He's the head of the Taliban at the time, who's now officially determined to be dead. But we could have done so much early on with more decisive action, which we did not get. In your career... How dramatic was the change in the impact of lawyers from the early days up through just before 9-11? I mean, it struck me that lawyers got to be more and more and more powerful. Yes, it was lawyer-driven. Tenet, to his credit, got so exasperated after 9-11. He said, I want a finding that 
will cut away all this nonsense. And the CIA lawyers and Justice Department, the White House, all White House counsel always gets engaged in this. They all moved rather rapidly, but we had nearly 3,000 people dead as a result of the 9-11 attacks. So it was very dismaying to me when we could have taken preemptive action and, and finished some of this long before they happened. When you lay awake at night, what worries you the most? I worry that we are being eclipsed very rapidly by China because of their investments. They made a strategic decision under Xi Jinping back when he was in Davos in uh, January 2017. He laid out his views that China will be the dominant power in the world. It will eclipse the United States, and he's made it clear subsequently that the plenum where he was elected president for life, no successor designated, that he's going to exceed the United States technically, economically, and the aggressiveness with which they have pursued buying people and essentially almost buying governments around the world is an aggressive effort to confront the West and confront the United States and to exceed it. This administration has to win this Huawei battle because we're not able to replicate everything that's necessary to meet the 5G era in which we're moving rapidly. If it weren't for Nokia and Ericsson, which are Western firms, we would not have the capabilities that we needed, end-to-end capabilities, because we've focused on software more than hardware. And there are some things we don't build end-to-end. China does. ZTE and Huawei do. If somebody came to you and said they were sort of wondering whether going into the intelligence community would be a good thing to do, what would you tell them? Would you recommend they do go in or not? Absolutely. It is the best job they could hope for. I talk to a lot of young people. I feel extremely proud of what we've done in getting some people with some skills, writing skills, critical thinking skills, and in some cases, really good languages that the agency needed. I think it's a great career. The career is great and the rewards are are great to be able to serve your country in intelligence. And CIA is getting a very advanced group of people. I think case officers of the futures will have to be different. They'll have to understand cyber, understand software, understand cutting-edge technology, what's going on in artificial intelligence and machine learning. I have breakfast frequently, mentoring them, telling them about the opportunities. And I find great enthusiasm. That's great. Listen, this has been extraordinarily helpful. Just listening to you today, you know so much. You've been in so many rooms. And you've been a remarkable American patriot. It's a great country, Mr. Speaker. It's a great country. Thank you to my guest, Charlie Allen. You can read more about the Central Intelligence Agency and Charlie's life as a leader in intelligence on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Grace Davis. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock, Tim Sabian, and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. 
If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, we'll explore the amazing story of how the Israelis discovered a secret nuclear reactor site in Syria connected to the North Koreans and then destroyed it in a covert mission. My guest is Yaakov Katz, author of Shadow Strike, Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power. Imagine that ISIS had taken over that territory where that reactor once stood, which it did in 2014. ISIS conquered where that reactor stood. And imagine ISIS had gotten its hands on a nuclear reactor. You would have radioactive, dirty bombs throughout the world. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.